0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: The book Sisters, recently published by the Royal Irish Academy, includes accounts of the Parnell sisters, the Shackletons, the Gorboots, the Yeatses, to name a few. But it's the essay on Hannah, Margaret, Mary, and Kathleen Sheehy which grabs my attention. This is not an idle interest but one sparked by the stories and half-stories I have gleaned over the years from my husband's family, where his mother was niece of Tom Kettle, who married Mary Sheehy. The Sheehy's with their four daughters and two sons were an established Dublin family in the first decade of the 20th century. They weren't very well off, but opened their home on Belvedere Place on Sunday afternoons for tea, sandwiches, debates, discussions and sometimes short dramas. Photos I've seen of the sisters show them as striking young women with long hair and fashionable outfits. I imagine the Sheehy soirees to be something like the evening depicted by James Joyce in his story The Dead. In fact, word has it in our family that the character of Miss Ivers is modelled on Mary Sheehy. Visitors to the Sheehy household included Joyce himself... Tom Kettle, a journalist barrister and nationalist Member of Parliament and Frank Skeffington, a writer and pacifist. These men were vocal in their views on politics but the women matched them in their passion and activism on behalf of women's suffrage. As time progressed, the eldest sister Hannah fell in love with Frank Skeffington and after a lengthy engagement married him in a non-religious ceremony much to the displeasure of her Catholic parents. Tom Kettle's frequent visits to the Sheehy home resulted in a courtship blossoming between himself and Mary. Worried that he was not sufficiently well-off to marry, Kettle moved to England to try and increase his income. At that stage, he was surviving on an indemnity paid to him as a Member of Parliament and the unreliable income of a journalist barrister. Luckily, this was to change in 1909, when he was offered a salaried professorship in the new National University of Ireland. With approval from her parents, Mary married Tom in the pro-cathedral St. Kevin's Chapel and returned to the Sheehy home in Belvedere Place for the wedding breakfast. The newlyweds received an assortment of presents, including silver items and china tea sets. Their friend, James Joyce, a man of limited means who could afford neither silver nor china, gave them a specially bound copy of his book of poems, Chamber Music. The Kettle spent their honeymoon in Austria, passing through Switzerland to attend a conference. They failed to turn up in Trieste to visit Nora Barnacle and James Joyce, as Kettle didn't view an invitation issued in a Dublin pub as a serious invite. But clearly the Joyces were expecting the newlyweds, as Joyce had written about the proposed visit to his brother Stanislaus. My mother-in-law's interpretation was that this was no oversight on Kettle's part. He was aware that his beloved Mary had been Joyce's muse and that Joyce was somewhat in love with her. Kettle may therefore have intentionally skipped that detour to Trieste. Having a feminist husband in the early 1900s was not usual, I'm sure, but the Sheehy sisters married open-minded men. The 1911 census shows that Tom completes the form but refuses to identify a head of household. Rather, he signs and amends it signature of one of the heads of the family. When Hannah married Frank, he changed his name by joining the two surnames to become Francis Sheehy Skeffington. While the Sheehy sisters were politically active, they did not always see eye to eye. Hannah and Frank stood for pacifism, while Mary's Tom signed up to fight in the Great War in France on behalf of small nations. Although imbued with idealism, Tom Kettle did not want to die. He wrote that he wanted to do his duty, survive the war and go home. Sadly, as a member of the 9th Battalion Royal Dublin Fusiliers, he was killed in the Somme in September 1916. Mary and Tom's only child, Betty, was aged just three at the time. I imagine she remembered little of her father. But Mary collated her husband's writings for posterity, some of which I have on my bookshelves, including his poetry. Tom Kettle's most well-known poem is a sonnet to my daughter Betty, the gift of God, written shortly before he died. I'm sure Betty Kettle often looked at the lines her father wrote for her and wondered about his ideals, his bravery, his romanticism. She was left with a poem and not a father. Know that we fools, now with the foolish dead, died not for flag, nor king, nor emperor, but for a dream born in a herdsman's shed and for the secret scripture of the poor.
2: Every year, my ma'am brought me to see Santa in the Victorian splendour of Pim's department store on George's Street, Dublin, and it was magical. Afterwards, we had Silver Service afternoon tea in the Hibernian Hotel on Dawson Street, and that was posh. These annual visits to Pim's were my mam's treat, but the moving crib was Dad's. My dad was a working man. His father had been a stableman. No wonder the Christmas story appealed to him. A child messiah born in a stable to a working man and his young wife. The newborn warmed by the breath of a donkey and a cow. The humble shepherds, the first to hear the news of the birth from the heavenly angels. This was the scene recreated in the moving crib. And the moving crib was enthralling. And after our visit, we'd have chips in Cafola and O'Connell Street, which was not posh, but the chips were delicious. Of course, without St Francis, there would be no moving crib, or any other crib for that matter. It was Francis who initiated the tradition almost 800 years ago in the town of Greccio, where Francis liked to stop on his visits to and from Rome. The feudal lord of this little fortified town, Giovanni Velita, was a friend and devotee of Francis. The hills around, covered in oak forests and dotted with caves, reminded Francis of the hills around Bethlehem, and the idea came to him of staging the Nativity in this landscape. From the way the story has been passed down, I imagined Francis rolling up his sleeves to prepare the cave and charming the animals into participating. Not a bit of it. Francis, it turns out, was more of an ideas man. He tasked his friend with making all the arrangements. It was Valita and his wife, Altachima, who found the cave, organised the animals, the hay, the flat stone, which served as the manger and the altar, and made the figure of the infant. They also promoted the event among the local population. Francis, for his part, turned up like a latter-day rock star in a candlelit procession of friars on Christmas Eve and celebrated Mass in the prepared cave. Almost immediately, the event became widely known and imitated, and the tradition of the crib was initiated. When we got married... We had a nativity set of chalk figures that were laid on the sideboard on a bed of straw. We didn't have a structure, a stable, to put them in. My father-in-law, Patrick Fagan, was gifted with his hands. He was by turns a plumber, carpenter, bricklayer, electrician, mechanic, restorer of old furniture and sometime cobbler. And Patrick made a crib to house our nativity figures, crafted with real care and attention for his beloved daughter. Forty years later, it is still going strong and has pride of place in our home at Christmas. As a youngster, I tied myself in knots over the word crib, and I still do mental gymnastics whenever I use it. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, well... That is pretty clear. The crib is a bed for an infant. And because there was no crib in the stable, the infant Jesus was laid in a manger, a box for feeding animals. My six-year-old self could visualise all that. And then in school, I was told that Jesus, Mary and Joseph, along with their little donkey and an ox, as well as the shepherds and their sheep, were all in the crib. So now I was totally confused. I mean, what were they thinking? Surely the baby Jesus would be crushed to death. And how could they all fit in a bed for a baby? I'm not sure when I came to an uneasy understanding that the word crib referred to the whole shebang. Infant, animals, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the stable, the three kings and the representations we make of that original scene. In addition to its meaning as a cot. Wow. And still the wonder grew that one small word could carry all that crew. A flawed experiment from 1907 concluded that the human soul weighs 21 grams, or three quarters of an ounce. It is a silly idea, but one that I indulge. On this calculation, we can easily carry the souls of our loved ones with us. They weigh so little and at Christmas I gladly carry them, my mother, my father, my father-in-law, and there's room too for St. Francis, the Ideas Man, and his friends Giovanni and Alta So much of what I love about Christmas I owe to these good souls. And in years to come, when my soul is as light as a feather, I hope our children will carry me and all their loved ones with them as they take the crib from the attic in preparation for another Christmas, or when they sing, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. <laughs>
3: The vocal range, the envy of many, but matched by few, Joe Dolan was always destined to be a star. From humble beginnings, Joe was different, he was unique. He had an incredible talent, and to this day, his songs and his very distinctive voice remain instantly recognisable. Born in Mullingar, County Westmeath, on the 16th of October 1939. Joseph Francis Dolan came from a fairly big family. His father died when he was ten and his mother, who always encouraged him, died while he was still in his teens. It was in his native Mullingard that he made his first stage appearance at a local talent show. In 1958, Joe got his first job as a compositor with the Westmeath Examiner. Around the same time he got his first guitar and having learned to play it, he and his brother Ben, who played the saxophone, began singing locally, but soon formed their own band, The Drifters. Tommy Swarbrick had joined as a trumpet player, and down through the years, some of Joe's wider family also joined the band. The 1960s Irish music scene was dominated by show bands, and with Joe's singing style and powerful vocal range, it didn't take long for him to be noticed. The show band scene was made for him. Even with huge acts like Brendan Boyer and Dickie Rock, Joe soon became one of Ireland's biggest attractions. Huge crowds would attend his sell-out shows in ballrooms and concert venues throughout the country and it was regularly recounted that items of lingerie would be thrown at Joe during his stage performance. Such was the adulation he inspired. Though, as a fan myself, I must plead not guilty to that particular charge. Joe Dolan and the Drifters' first single, The Answer to Everything, was released in September 1964 and reached number four in the Irish charts. He was invited to play in Las Vegas in 1965 but declined, preferring instead to play a whistle-stop tour of Chicago. New York and Boston. During that trip, he had the opportunity to hear music which hadn't yet reached the UK or Ireland. And in 1966, he released the Jim Reeves song, Pretty Brown Eyes. The band went on to have more success with Make Me an Island, giving them their first appearance on BBC's Top of the Pops. Follow-up singles, "Teresa" and Good Looking Woman, were also huge hits. In 1980, having turned down numerous invitations, he eventually did perform for six weeks at the Silverbird Casino in Las Vegas, playing 64 sold-out shows. He was invited to return, but only ever went back on holiday. By 1978, Joe was an international star And it was his collaboration with songwriters Roberta Denova and Peter Yellowstone that gave Joe some of his most successful songs. The single Lady in Blue was his biggest hit, especially internationally, winning five gold records and selling one million copies. It demonstrated perfectly his great vocal dexterity. More success followed with I Need You, More and more, and it's you, it's you, it's you. In 1978, Joe became the first Irish artist and first Western pop act to tour Communist Russia and he was placed on a UN blacklist for visiting South Africa during apartheid. However, the fans adored him and his success continued to grow. He's the only Irish singer to have number one hits across four decades, the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. An amazing achievement and a tribute to both his voice and the quality of the songs. Out of the spotlight, Joe had a quiet offstage presence and was a bit of a homebird, really. He didn't particularly relish long tours away from home especially in the later years. He loved golf, and it's widely acknowledged that many charities benefited greatly from his support and generosity. Over time, his pristine white suit and white tie became his trademark, and at the end of the show, while singing an encore, usually Goodbye Venice Goodbye, he'd throw his tie specially inscribed with Joe Dolan on it, into the rapturous and screaming audience. With his extraordinary vocal range and songs, it seemed inevitable that Joe's energetic stage performances would earn him the title of Ireland's greatest showman. It's 15 years since Joe passed away and his songs have certainly stood the test of time. He's still hugely missed, both in music circles and by the fans, Years of travelling, interviews and exhausting stage shows had begun to take their toll. He had been suffering declining health following a hip replacement, passing away to the great shock of many on the 26th of December 2007, aged 68. In Market Square, in his hometown of Mullingar, there's a statue erected in his honour and in September 2010... One of the longest bridges in Ireland, the Joe Dolan Memorial Bridge, was officially opened and named after him. Imitation may indeed be the sincerest form of flattery, but the mould was broken when they made Joe. He was a one-off. Anyone who has seen him perform will know that his shows were absolute feel-good shows and you were guaranteed to leave feeling happy. Probably. The best tribute you can pay any artist and confirmation that there really was no show like a Joe show.
4: I, know more.
2: I hope we'll meet again. I've lost you now for sure.
5: Hard to believe it. UL, the University of Limerick, is 50 years old this year. Solid, sprawling, and serene by the Shannon. A regal seat of learning to be proud of. I remember the big push in the 1960s to gain recognition for the need for a university for Limerick. There were marches and other campaigns through the city in the drive to make the dream come true. I was on their side, of course, but when everything was on the brink of approval, I almost scuppered the whole effort. Let me tell you the story. During the 1960s, I was working as a receptionist in Limerick Corporation. I manned an inquiries hatch for the public, but it was a bit difficult for me. My chair was low down and I had to stand up to reach the bolt to open it. It was the city accountant who sorted that. He brought me four huge old ledgers and piled them on my office chair and they raised me up. There was a constant stream of people through my office on business with the city manager. Visitors waited with me until he was free to see them. I met local politicians, government ministers, corporation officials and heads of departments. Every evening at closing time, all the post was left with me. It was my duty to list each item and put it into the big leather post bag and fasten the buckles. The messenger boy came in for it and he delivered the bag to the GPO Limerick. The then Minister for Education, Donal O'Malley, was a frequent visitor. A university for Limerick was his primary project at the time. Oozing charisma, he swept through the building on a cloud of Old Spice aftershave and everything he touched confirmed his presence in the building. He was formidable and exacting, and his driver had his ministerial Merck engine running right outside the front door. The entire staff breathed a sigh of relief every time he left the building. Then, one Monday morning, there was a bit of commotion when he arrived. The city manager and the town clerk were all of a dither, phones were ringing in every office. The Minister for Education left the building with blue smoke coming out his ears, as someone put it. Gradually, the story filtered down to me. The architectural plans for the university were missing. They had been posted from our office to government offices in Dublin, but never arrived. There was great consternation and no wonder. A deadline had to be met. It was a time before photocopying or personal computers or digital anything. Those plans had been drawn up by the city architect and painstakingly copied by draftsmen. The work had taken weeks, and now they were missing. As he left the building that Monday morning, the Minister for Education flung a few fiery words over his shoulder, all of which meant incompetence. The plan had to be redrawn instantly. Staff worked throughout the night and the following day until everything was completed and a staff member was dispatched by train to Dublin to deliver the precious drawings and documents. It took weeks for the dust to settle. Some months later, as I reached up to close the inquiry's hatch, my chair tilted with the amount of weight on it. The four big ledgers toppled onto the floor, carrying me with them. I wasn't hurt, but there on the floor, between the spread-out books, was a big envelope. I looked at it and recognised it immediately. Oh, horror. Then it dawned on me. The envelope was so big, it was too thick to fit into the post bag that day, and I had put it under the books on my chair in order to flatten it and forgotten all about it. The disaster that had caused such bother, it was me. I was the one responsible. What could I do? In a panic, I consulted my closest colleague. Burn it, she said. But no, I had to own up. I was transferred to the city library for a month until my incompetence was almost forgiven and life went back to normal again. Hard to believe it. Despite all my effort in halting it, UL... The University of Limerick is now 50 years old, solid, sprawling and serene by the lordly Shannon, a regal seat of learning to be proud of.
6: I remember very clearly where I was on Christmas Eve 2012 when my brother Seamus got a phone call conveying bad news about our brother Dennis O'Driscoll. I was listening to a documentary on Radio 4 about Enid Blyton's Faraway Tree series at the garden centre Seamus and I have run for many years. Dennis had once written to Enid Blyton, as he recounts in the essay he wrote about growing up in Thurles called Circling the Square. I had stuck with Enid Blyton the whole way from Noddy to the Famous Five, he wrote. I dared interrupt the author's prodigious flow with a fan letter, to which she responded in neat blue biro and characteristically excitable style. Thank you for your well-written letter. Perhaps one day you will write a book. What a thrill that would be for you. And how proud you would feel when you saw your very own book in the public library. How perceptive she was. Dennis would indeed see his books in Thurlis Library, first his poetry books and then his invaluable book-length interview with Seamus Heaney, Stepping Stones. Dennis had been in poor health for some time when the phone call came from his wife, Julie. The day had taken a dreaded turn and the garden centre had to be closed so that we could make our way to Nace General Hospital. I remembered that I had ordered a birthday cake from a local bakery for my daughter Lottie's Christmas Day birthday and thinking of Raymond Carver's story, A Small Good Thing, in which the repercussions of an uncollected birthday cake play out, I decided I had to get it before we left for Nace. Of such bothersome everyday details was Dennis's poetry made. The mundane irritations of domestic and office life were the material for so much of his work, along with the unavoidable inevitability of death. He was a man who favoured order and the proper procedure for living a judicious life. He would have been appalled at himself at the inconvenience and disruption, as he would have seen it, that he was causing us now, on Christmas Eve of all times. After the death of our mother when I was aged 11, Dennis, who was nine years older, decided that Christmas should be a time of joy. His arrival home on Christmas Eve was anticipated for days, and the handing out of presents could never be left until Christmas Day. My sister Ethna and I longed to see what he had brought for us, so on the evening of Christmas Eve he would give us the carefully chosen presents which never failed to delight and excite us. Among the presents he gave me, there were always books. He passed on to me his deep love of literature, although not specifically poetry, which never appealed to me as much as fiction. As the years went by, he would enthuse about particular poets, Philip Larkin or Miroslav Holub, for example, and give me the occasional poetry book. But it was by introducing me to ever more challenging fiction that he sparked in me a passion that has never burnt out. Something he recalled in a poem I particularly cherish called Declan at 20. Only a few years ago, it was Jennings' schoolboy stories that I brought you. Now I pack avant-garde books. Tom Mallon, Alan Burns, a B.S. Johnson play. Dennis reveled in cooking the best Christmas dinner possible he insisted on having potatoes cooked three different ways and taking great care with the stuffing so that it could be declared to be the best ever. After dinner, when we were just about able to walk as far as the sofa to recover, he would always pause, look into the middle distance and declare, in a voice of pseudo-profundity, it's as far away now as it'll ever be. It's ten years since Dennis died on Christmas Eve 2012, with most of his siblings and his treasured wife, Julie, around him. We have, somehow, managed to live on without him. Without his advice and his humour, without his postcards and without his poetry. His final poems were written with the full knowledge that his time was limited. One of them even takes the form of a posthumous poem, almost too stark in its honesty to be easily read. So I will read instead the opening verses of an earlier poem in which he reflects on the 10 years since the death of our mother, a poem which, for me, now carries an even greater weight of resonance. Disturbing My Mother. In the 10 years since our last direct exchange I have not dared to interrupt your rest. It is so long since we were one family, talking together in one inviolable room. Our silence now is like a Sunday afternoon at home, you taking your weekly break, dozing by the fire, the newspaper sliding down your knees, your face palsied by twitching flames. Thank you.
4: Christmas Eve. The past is a scattering of barnacled rocks at the edge of ocean. Indoors we keep journals of sorrows and accidents, though most wonderful has been the ongoing common everyday, too easily forgotten. Because letters cut into the gravestone merge too soon with the stone Back door, its ditch-dark green, rain-swollen, scraping open or scraping shut, has scored a perfectly shaped quarter-circle on the black flags and gouged a large splinter out of itself at the base, where a field mouse might whisper through. One nightfall, Christmas Eve... Before, electricity had driven angels and all supernaturals out that back door. When oil lamps still stood elegant, like women in a painting by Toulouse-Lautrec. Father took me out into the heathlands, the hill lit only by a weak starlight. Then turned me round to see. In all the windows of the houses there were candles lighting their intimacy and presence transfiguring the world. I stood awed and, somehow, triumphant. No lights have ever since been adequate to the birth, to the remembrance.
0: This morning we heard Mary Sheehy and Tom Kettle by Nullig Rowan. Of Cribs, St Francis and The Weight of Souls was by Kevin McDermott. Ireland's Greatest Showman was by Mary Wall and that was followed by The Plans for UL by May Leonard. Dennis at Christmas was by Declan O'Driscoll and Christmas Eve, a poem by John F. Dean. The music was Somewhere a Voice is Calling composed by Arthur Tate and played by Stephen Hock on piano. Awéna Manger by Arturo Delmoni and Friends Goodbye Venice, Goodbye was by Joe Dolan Baja on Scholera, The Scholar's Life, composed by Patrick Cassidy and performed by the Irish Chamber Orchestra, Moura Nick and the University of Limerick Choir and Ave Maria, played by Yo-Yo Ma on cello and Catherine Stott on piano and that composition, Baha on Scholara, by Patrick Cassidy, is a new co-commissioned by the University of Limerick and RTE Lyric FM to mark UL's 50th anniversary this year. It's based on the ancient Irish poem Baha on Scholara, The Scholar's Life. John F. Dean's latest poetry collection is Naming of the Bones, published by Carcanet Press. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.